Jesus family tree. There are a couple of places where you can find it in the Bible. Dr. Luke uh, takes us all the way back to Adam and shows the lineage of Jesus. Uh, and then Matthew, when you open up the New Testament, in fact, the very first chapter of the New Testament is Jesus' family tree written for us by Matthew. Matthew's family tree of Jesus is kind of peculiar, though, and we're going to talk about that peculiarity today. Most of the names are men. Now, that's not peculiar because in the first century, it was a male-dominated culture, so chances are in someone's family tree, you would only have male names based on who someone's father was and that person's father. But in Matthew's family tree of Jesus, we have the names of four women, and that's interesting because in that day, that was very unusual for a woman's name to be included in genealogy, but there are four special women, and we have their names for us. Now, at first blush, and here's the thing. Let me just back, for, back up for a moment. Matthew is laying out the case that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, uh, the, the, that he is the King of kings. So Matthew's laying out that case, and he's going to include the names of four women. Our first assumption probably if it was being written the way you and I would write it, trying to make a case for Jesus, our assumption would be that these four women are very, very special women, that they are sort of perhaps the saints in Jesus' uh, family tree with a halo around their heads. Maybe these women were very, very special uh, women, maybe especially noble in their lifestyle. Maybe uh, Sarah, the mother of the Jewish race, or Rebecca, or Rachel, or Judge Deborah, or Queen Esther, you know, women of that kind of great stature, we would assume that those are the women whose names that Matthew is going to include. But that's where it gets very, very peculiar because the four women that Matthew cherry-picks, and I'm sure God had him do this, a little bit peculiar. Well, let me read the names to you. In verse 3, he tells us about Tamar. In verse 5, he tells us about Rahab. Also in verse 5 is Ruth. And then in verse 6, there's a, a woman whose name he doesn't give us, but we know who he's talking about. Uh, he said this person's mother had been Uriah's wife, had been Uriah's wife. That's kind of interesting. Um, just to give you a little summary of who these four women are, the first one, Tamar, was a woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to have a baby with her father-in-law. And then there was a woman who was a prostitute. And then there was a pagan woman. And then... A woman who slept with a king, had an affair with a king, got pregnant, and the king had her husband murdered. Now, I'm asking you today to think with me, isn't that just a little bit peculiar? Of all the women who could have been selected, you know, like I said, Sarah, Ra Rachel, Rebecca, Deborah, Esther, of all these noble women, why Tamar, Rahab, Ruth? And Bathsheba. Could it be that right out of the box, God wants us to realize that he doesn't think the way that we think? Is it, is it because God's way of doing things is different from our way of doing things? I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be really frank with you. If I were writing the story of Jesus' genealogy, I would have found a convenient way to leave these women out. I mean, if we were going to put the names of women, I would have found some sort of way to dodge their names. I remember many years ago reading a story about one of these blue-blood Bostonian types who wanted to have her family ancestry researched. And if I recall the story correctly, she hired a Harvard professor, paid him a huge sum of money to research her family tree. And in this Harvard researcher's, uh, professor's research, he discovered that one of this woman's ancestors had been hung for stealing cattle, hanged. 
And he was afraid that if he told the real story, she wouldn't pay him the big sum of money he'd been promised. So when he wrote the story of this guy, he, he found a euphemistic way to express it. He said this in his report. John died. He was standing on a platform when it suddenly gave way. I think I would have found some way to very quietly go over these women's stories without mentioning their names and calling attention to it. But as I said, and I don't have this in my notes today, but in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, the Bible says God doesn't think the way we think, and his ways are not our ways. This is the problem with religion. I've told you for years, those of you who are New Springers, I hate religion, and my, my quintessential issue with religion is religion's man's attempt to figure out God. It is, it is human beings sitting around trying to figure out how to get to God. The story of the Bible is not man's trying to figure out how to get to God. It is God's story of reaching out to us. That is what makes a relationship with God different from religion. And this is why religion never figures it out. Someone says, what's the difference in religion? There is no difference in religion. They're all the same. They're all lame. Because human beings cannot figure God out. God does things very different from us. See, the issue with religion says, get yourself better. You figure out a way to jump through all the hoops and, and do all the things that the religion requires. And then if you get up to a certain level, then God will accept you. I mean, right out of the box in the family tree of Jesus, we have a, a woman who pretends to be a prostitute. We have a genuine hooker. We have a, a woman who sleeps with a king and, the, and her husband, the king has her husband killed. We have a pagan. What is God trying to say to us? Jesus' family is a colorful bunch. I want to talk to you for a few moments about this woman whose name is Rahab. I won't keep you long, but I want to talk to you about three phases of, Rachel's, of Rahab's life. I want to talk to you about Rahab's past. I want to talk to you about Rahab's change and then Rahab's new life. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get those over with and then we'll go home, but I think we'll be different when this service is over. Let's talk about briefly Rahab's past. I want you to meet Rahab. If you want to find her in the Bible, you'll find her in a book called Joshua, pretty early in the Old Testament. And if you know the Bible very well, you know that Joshua is the story of how the Israelites would enter into Canaan. And at the very border of Canaan is the city named Jericho. Jericho would sort of be like the combination of New York City and Las Vegas. Jericho is a place where people are very affluent, they live in luxury, and it's also a very wicked place. There are a lot of issues in the way these people live their lives. But Jericho has a special feature that has caused these people to feel secure and rich. For one thing, it happens to be in sort of an oasis, so even though the area around Jericho can be a little bit arid, Jericho is, is lush. And beyond that, Jericho is secure because it has a system of walls. Some of us have heard the story about how the Israelites marched around Jericho and the wall fell down, but it wasn't a wall. It was a series of walls. There was an earthen embankment, then there was an exterior retaining wall, and then there was an interior wall. And like I say, they were very secure. People in those days were concerned about being invaded and somebody, some other power coming stealing their stuff, but Jericho didn't have to worry about this because nobody could scale their walls. At points, the walls were 12 feet thick and 40, 41 feet tall. So if you were standing outside the walls of Jericho, you were thinking, there's no way an army could invade this place. And you know how it is. People living in, in places like Jericho and America 
where life is affluent and fairly secure, people that live in places like that can develop an attitude. And that's where Rahab lived. So I want you to meet Rahab. Rahab has has grown up in the Jericho culture, and basically Rahab has benefited from it. Several things I want you to know about her. First of all, according to tradition, she was one of the four most beautiful women in the world. Now, I don't know how she got this title. Maybe she was in a Miss, Miss World pageant and was Miss Jericho. I don't know. But she was one of the four most beautiful women in the world. And I I do not know what this means, but some of you know what it means to be attractive. I am told and I read that for people who are attractive, that life is better for them. They make more money and they tend to get special favors in life. Well, I can imagine that, that Rahab got some very special favors if she indeed was one of the four most beautiful women in the world. And you should know this about Rahab. It's kind of interesting to me. Rahab was well off because she had a business. She had a designer clothing business. And, uh, and I know to, for us today, clothes are not like they were back in, in you know, 3,000 years ago. But back then, you could tell the expense or the, the cost of a piece of clothing oftentimes by its coloration. It was rare to have clothes that were dyed red or scarlet or purple. And evidently, Rahab had her own line of designer clothing that was scarlet in color. And so she had made money. And the reason why I know this, most women in those days lived in the house of a male relative, their father or older brother. But Rahab lived by herself. She was a single woman, a businesswoman, had her own house. And not just any house, she had prime real estate. Her house was actually built into the city wall so that the front of her house looked out over the city. It was the party scene. And then all the windows in the back of her house looked out over the Jordan River. So this is a woman who was beautiful. This is a woman who had her own business, who was very successful, a woman who owned real estate. And oh yeah, she has one more business. If her daytime business is designer clothing, well, we read about her nighttime business several times in the Bible. In Joshua 2.1, it says they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Joshua 6.25, he spared Rahab the prostitute. Hebrews 11.31, the prostitute Rahab. James 2.25, Rahab the prostitute. So do you, can you guess what her primary line of business was? Rahab was a prostitute. And even after her life turned around, if you look even in the New Testament, people couldn't forget her past. She was still called Rahab the prostitute. Rahab has sex issues. Quite frankly, Rahab trades her body for money. And guys, I know I'm going to sound really old school here today, but I've got to tell you something. I believe sex is a wonderful gift that God has given to us. It's a gift that brings bonding between a husband and wife, and it brings great pleasure Sex is like a fire. You know, if you have a fire inside a stove, it can warm the house and, and cook the food. But if you get the sto- a fire outside the stove, it can burn the house down. And that's kind of how sex is. Because if you get sex working the way God wants it to work, it's awesome. You get sex working the way God doesn't want it to work, and it's a disaster. But here's the thing that we can't get away from. How you view sex, your, your sexuality, how you view sex has everything to do with what you believe about God. Because if you don't believe in God, then your idea of sex is, and I mean, if you, you could say, well, I have this sort of religious theoretic view of God, but I mean, if you really don't believe in a real God who loves you and cares about you and has a design for your life, then chances are you believe pretty much it's all right for you to have sex with anybody pretty well anytime you want to have sex and your sexuality, or you would say it this way, my sexuality is my business. And that's kind of how Rahab felt. Because after all, Rahab grew up in a culture 
where there wasn't a God like you and I know from the Bible. It was a, it was a pantheon of gods. And, and these gods, it was kind of like, if you've studied Greek or Roman mythology, it was sort of like mythology. All the mythologies are all the same. They just changed the names of the gods. And she grew up with Canaanite gods. And the interesting thing about Rahab's world was there was nothing wrong with what Rahab did. I mean, everybody looked up to her. She was just a smart businessman. In Rahab's town, it was kind of like Vegas. There's nothing wrong with prostitution. In fact, in Rahab's world, when they went to worship their gods, it, it, it turned into an orgy. There were, there were male and female prostitutes, and that was just, that was worship. So Rahab grew up in a world where there was absolutely nothing wrong with what she did. She was just, I mean, she was viewed as smart. She was beautiful, one of the foremost beautiful women in the world. She had a line of designer clothing. She had probably one of the nicest houses in town. And on top of that, she had a nighttime business. She was sexually active, had lots of sex partners. And it could be, and I'm not trying to be personal, but I, it could be that in the story, I'm getting very close to you. You wouldn't be a, a prostitute, but... You sort of find some similarity with Rachel, or with Rahab, rather. You're, you're doing well. You're financially set. Things are going pretty good for you. You're attractive. People like you, and, and you have sex with several people. I don't know if I can speak for you, but, you know, one thing about Rahab, when you look at this story, one thing is inescapable. Although... Although she's living in a beautiful house with her big bankroll and on the cover of Victoria's Secret. I mean, with all these things that Rahab has going for, she isn't happy. Something's missing in her life. With the money, the sex, beauty, the high profile, she's not happy. That's Rahab's past. Now let's talk about Rahab's change. If you want to understand Rahab's change, you've got to realize that it all started about 40 years before, long before Rahab was born. The people of Jericho, who felt completely secure in their affluence, that no one could overcome them. The people of Jericho, about 40 years before, were beginning to hear snippets of a strange story. That there was a people group, some two and a half, three million strong, who had left Egypt and were on their way toward them. And that normally wouldn't give them any trouble because they had massive walls. But they heard that this people group approached the sea, a red sea. And as they came to the brink of the sea, the sea opened up and they walked across on the other side and they got into the wilderness and they were headed right for Jericho. And that gave them a little concern. Then all of a sudden it just went silent for 38 years. They never heard from these people again. They didn't know. Did they die? Did they disappear? Did they decide to go the other direction? I mean, at first it sounded like they have trouble headed their way. But then all of a sudden it just goes quiet. But now after 38 years, they get the word that these people are on the march again, and they're headed right for them. And what's even more troubling to the people of Jericho, there were some people groups in between the wilderness and Jericho, which was on the other side of Jordan, and these, these Israelites were going through these other powers like a hot knife through, through, through butter. Now you and I know what the people of Jericho, Jericho don't know. These are the Israelites. They have been slaves in Egypt. They were God's chosen people. God made Pharaoh 10 deals he couldn't refuse. And on the 10th deal, Pharaoh had to let the Israelites go. And 40 years before, it was these Israelites who had come to the brink of the Red Sea. And God had opened it up. And they'd gone across on the red side, on the, on the other side. And when, when the Pharaoh's army came in, the waters closed on them. And they got into the wilderness. They got 11 days away from Canaan. 
And when they got there, Moses, who was the leader at that time, had sent 12 spies over to Canaan to see if the land was everything God said it was. And sure enough, they went over across the Jordan River, checked out Canaan, came back. Ten of the spies said, yes, it's, a, it's an awesome land, but there are giants over there and we'll never win. We'll get creamed. Two of the spies came back and said, it's an awesome land and we can take it. But the majority report ruled. And even though God had told them that he was giving them the land, they choked at a moment of destiny. And God said, all right, I'm going to let you guys wander around in the wilderness for 40 years and let this older generation die. And then I'm going to take the new generation over into Canaan. And so now what has happened after that 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel is being led by a new leader, actually by one of the two spies who had come back and brought a positive report. His name is Joshua. And for all of us men and women who are in leadership, we ought to take a page out of Joshua's playbook to learn a lesson. Moses sent 12 spies over there, one for each of the 12 tribes. I guess that was politically correct. When Joshua got ready to send spies, he didn't send 12, even though they had 12 tribes. He sent two. I mean, two had come back with a positive report the first time. Joshua said, I'm just going to send two I can trust. And I don't, these guys, I tell you, they must have been Navy SEALs. They must have been special ops. They must have been Green Beret Marines. I don't know. I mean, these guys were really something because here's the thing. They swam across the Jordan River when it was at flood stage, and it was at flood stage because the snow had melted off the mountains. This is a frigid, swollen river. These guys swam across, got on the other side, walked right into the gates of the city of Jericho to check it out. Now, work with me for a moment. You're a spy. You're a guy. You've just swam across the Jordan River. You're an Israelite. You realize you're going to walk into Jericho. You're a stranger. You need to find some place to stay overnight. Where could two guys stay, strangers walking into a place, and not be noticed? I'm not going to start singing, there is a house in New Orleans they call the rising sun, but you understand there, there is a place where these two guys can walk in. Now, they're not going to go in and do business with Rahab, but basically they realize they can get a room for the night and walk in there, and nobody's going to be surprised that two strange men would walk into this house. Now, they know what God is doing. They know that God is sending them there to be spies. They know that they're to bring back a report. But what they do not know, what they could not have known, is that God was doing something in the heart of the woman who owned the house. You see, I mean, this is, this is such a God thing. I mean, the spies, all they know is they're going to go into the house of a prostitute. Nobody's going to notice them. What they don't know is that in this prostitute's heart, she is beginning to do the mental calculus. And she's thinking something that goes like this. Everybody in town, everybody in Jericho is scared of these three million people out there on their border. But they're saying to themselves, they'll never be able to get over our walls. They're scared, but they're trusting in the walls. And Rahab is over there thinking, you know, these people, 40 years before, they came to a sea, and their God opened the sea, and they walked across on dry land. If their God could do that, he's not going to have any trouble with walls. And what's more, if they have a God who can open a sea, it's not like these Canaanite mythology gods that I've been taught about all my life. This God must be something special. In fact, if he can open up a sea, he must be the true God. And here's what I think is beautiful. At that moment, Rachel began to think something like this. I don't just want to survive this invasion. 
What's missing in my life is that true God. I want to know that true God. I don't just want to survive. I want to change sides. Now at that moment, the Jericho police have discovered that two spies are in the city and somebody has told them that they're in the house of Rahab. And so they knock on Rahab's door. Rahab has a decision to make. Is she going to reveal that the spies are in her house and be loyal to her city? Or is Rahab going to begin to explore what it would mean to change sides? In her heart, the decision is made. She hides the spies out on the, on the roof of her home. And she tells the police that they went that away and sends the police away. And then Rahab goes up to talk to the two spies to begin to talk to them about her being saved. Now, guys, this is where we go from over 3,000 years ago to today in 2012. Because I want to ask you a question. Here's what I want to ask you. This is what just blows religion out of the water. How does a Canaanite prostitute get a relationship with God? How does a woman who has spent her life in idolatry, going to orgies, how does a woman who has put on her makeup and her seductive clothes and invited man after man into her home, taken him into her back room, did what she did, and take the money? I just want to ask you a question. How does a Canaanite prostitute get a relationship with God? Because we're going to get told. There are four things that, is, that are so clear. And what's so wonderful about this, these four things are true today. Because it's not just how, how does Rahab get a relationship with God. It's how do, how do you and I get a relationship with God. Because you and I get a relationship with God the same way that Rahab got one. It's real simple. Let's just click through it real, real fast here. Rahab goes up to talk to the guys. And she says in verse 10, we have heard how the Lord made a path for you. Do you know that that's where a relationship with God begins? With you hearing what God has to say to you? In fact, one of the most important verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 10, verse 17. The Bible says, faith comes from hearing and hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. I mean, in just a moment, we're going to get to number two, and I'm going to give it away now. Number two is believing God's message. But you can't believe unless you know what to believe. At some point, you have to hear the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God makes a path for people. I mean, this Rahab, when, these, when she goes up to talk to these two spies that she's hidden on the roof, she said, look, we've all heard how your God has made a path for you. That's what you're doing right now. Hey, I don't claim to be an eloquent speaker. I'm always amazed that people listen while I talk. I, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. But what I am bringing to you is I'm bringing a message from God. And, and here's the thing, when you, when you open up and you hear that message, because some people won't, some people say, well, I don't want to get out of here, I'm going to go you know, watch the NFL, and, and I, I've got things to do. And I, when you hear the message, I mean, everybody in Jericho heard that there was a people group on the outside, but only Rahab really heard that God was at work. She said, I've heard. The second thing, Rahab believed. I want you to look at this. She says to the spies, the Lord your God is the supreme God of heavens above and the earth below. Rahab said, I, I've, I've picked up on the fact that your God is different from my gods. My gods are fake. My gods are phony. My gods are mythological. Your God opens seas. 
your God does extraordinary things. I have done the calculus and I figured out that your God is the true God and I have put my confidence in him. So much had she put her confidence in the true God that she had risked her life by misdirecting her local police and sparing the two spies who were in her town. Listen, it wasn't about the spies, it was about their God. And Rahab was saying, look, I am so broken in life. I am so empty. I don't care if I lose my life. I will risk my life in order to meet the God who opens seas. She heard. She believed. But now don't let me lose you right here. Number three, somehow there has to be a way for a Canaanite prostitute to have a relationship with God. See, she's got lots of problems. I mean, she's, like I said, she's been to orgies and she's done things at those orgies that are so ugly that you and I wouldn't even want to think about them. And she's worshiped idol gods instead of the true God of heaven. And how many times and how many men, how many times has she sold her body I mean, that's the thing. See, you and I have got a, we like, maybe not like Rahab, but we've got stuff that we've done wrong. And, and we, we hear about God and, and we believe that he's God, but how, how is there a way? And see, this is where, where religion comes in for so many of us. We've been taught, we get to this place where we hear about God and we believe in him, but we get misdirected into religion because religion says, well, it's our way. Join our church. Learn our rules. Go through our ordinances. Because deep down inside, we, we know that flawed people like us can't have a relationship with a holy God unless there's a way. And Rahab basically said to the spies, look, I, I know who I am, but I want to be rescued. I want to be saved. Now, what we're going to see here is extraordinary because the spies now are going to tell her how to be saved. They're going to tell her how to be rescued when the attack happens. They said, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. You listening to me, please? I don't see anything here about her having been a prostitute. I don't see anything here about her sleeping with hundreds of men who were not her husband. I don't see anything here about her going to orgies. I don't see anything here about her being an idolater. Basically what they were saying is, we take full responsibility for rescuing you. You don't have to pay us anything. You don't have to give us anything. You don't have to find some way to deal with your past. You don't have to find some way to whitewash the things that you've done wrong. Look, we're going to come into this town. We're going we're to assault this town. But if we see our scarlet thread, why scarlet? Well, we know that that was the business she was in. But, you know, it's interesting to me. I wonder if these spies thought about the Passover when 40 years before the people have been told if the blood is on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over. Or perhaps it's because the Bible would talk to us about our sins being like scarlet. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible, God says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, same Hebrew word that the spies used with Rahab, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. 
I think there's a reason why for the, the, scarlet, the scarlet color, because deep into history and deep into the future from that point, 2,000, 3,000 years later, the Son of God would hang on a cross and something scarlet would come out of his body. His blood would come out. That would be a currency for our sins. Now, you listening to me, please. There is a way, a way for you and me to have a relationship with God. And in God's lining out of this way, there's nothing about our past. There's nothing about us changing. There's nothing about us undoing the wrong that we've done or paying for it ourselves. In John 3.16, there are many places where the Bible gives it to us, but this is my personal favorite. In John 3.16, the Bible says, this is the way, this is the plan. For God so loved the world, that's everybody in the world, that he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, that's what we celebrate in Christmas. He gave his one and only son, that whoever, that's any of us, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you notice there's nothing in there about all the things that you've done wrong or that I've done wrong? We can't undo them anyway. Do you you know that there's nothing there about a promise to do everything right in the future? God knows I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. And there's nothing there. I mean, see, this is the thing that just blows religion up because religion says, okay, here's the way. You got to do this. And yet when I read about God's way, he says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, it is by grace that you are saved. Grace, charis, the Greek word charis, which means gift. If a person has charisma, they are gifted. It is by charis, it is by grace that you are saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You know what the spies were asking Rahab? Rahab, here's the way. You've got to trust. You've got to trust. And that is what God is asking you. Number one, you got to hear. You just did. Number two, you've got to believe. And perhaps you have. Number three, there's got to be a way. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. Jesus came and, and did for us what we couldn't do. He lived the life we can't live. And then he laid it down on a cross and he got punished for our sins. And the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for everything that we ever have done or will do wrong. And there's a way now, and what we need to do is to, we, we need to put all our confidence in him, not in religion, not in our ability to live a different life, but our, our, our trust in him personally and what he did for us. And now the fourth thing. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 21, the spies said, look, you've got to hang that cord in the window. And like the good businesswoman that she was, she simply says, I accept your terms. I accept your terms. God has made you an offer. His offer is you can be forgiven, you can have everlasting life, you can be adopted into God's family. And simply by putting all your confidence in Jesus Christ, in God's plan for you, in God's God's answer for your sin. You know, at this moment, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to say, I reject your terms, or I accept your terms. And there are all kinds of ways to reject God's terms. You can, you can say, oh, it can't be that simple. 
that's tantamount to rejecting God's terms. It's like saying, I'm going to figure out my own terms. Or you can say, well, it's not how I was raised. Well, Rahab could have said that. Or it could be that you'll say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. That's a soft refusal, but it's a refusal nonetheless because God never calls anybody tomorrow. There's only one day God calls people, and that's today. A few moments ago we read, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Or you can say, God, I accept. I can't undo my past. I can't quit screwing up. God, there's so many things I can't do, but I accept. I accept your terms. I've heard, I believe you've made a way for me. I accept your terms. Maybe that sounds freaky, but God's ways are just different from ours. Religion has told us all our life, jump through these hopes and you'll be accepted. God comes along and says, no. You hear, you believe, you accept my plan. You accept my terms. And God says, I adopt you into my family. And that's what Rahab did. By the way, you know, this isn't the last time we... We read about Rahab. In the, in the book of Hebrews, there's a hall of fame for, for great believers. It's a hall of fame of faith. In the hall of fame, the only hall of fame I've ever been to is the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. For some reason, I, I've spoken at a church in Canton a lot, and I've gone to the hall of fame there. I love it, Pro Football Hall of Fame. I love walking up and down the hallways seeing all of us. When you, when you look in Hebrews chapter 11, you're walking up and down the hallways of the great people of faith. In the Hall of Fame in the Bible, there are two women mentioned. One is Sarah. We're not surprised. She's the mother of the Jewish people. Do you know the other woman who is in the Hall of Fame? In verse 31, Rahab. You know what I think about when I think about that? If there's room in the family of Jesus for a Canaanite prostitute, there's room for you. If there's room in the hall of faith for the Jericho madam, there's room for you. So much so that when the Holy Spirit had Matthew tell us about the family tree of Jesus, he put in the story the name of Rahab. I want to ask you today, have you accepted God's terms? Not are you religious. Religion won't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. I mean, you know we believe in baptism, but baptism won't do it. Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. Do you have a relationship with God? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and this is a way, and this prayer is not special. These aren't magic words. What, what you mean is what matters. But here's the thing. God has made a way for you. Jesus has paid the cost for it. If you're ready to accept God's terms, I'm going to pray a prayer that accepts God's terms. And, and I'm going to pray it slowly, 
I'm going to say it like when I, when I marry a couple and I ask the bride and the groom to repeat after me. It may not be their choice of words, but if they mean it from their hearts, they're married when they get through, okay? So here's the thing. I'm going to pray a prayer. and you have a ch- I'm going to pray it slowly because I want you to think about the phrases and really mean it. Here we go. All of us praying, even if you've already received Christ, praying for those who will make this decision. If you're ready to accept God's terms, let's go. Ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't undo my past, and I can't be perfect. But I believe in you. I believe you are the true God. And I believe your son Jesus is the way to everlasting life. I believe the blood that came out of his body is a currency that paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And I believe you offer me the gift of eternal life. I accept your terms. I accept your terms. Thank you for forgiving me and making me God's child. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I know you may have a lot of questions, and I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet. On the inside, there's a DVD and a book that I wrote to answer a lot of questions about the decision you just made, plus a coupon for a new Bible, which I just dropped. So all you need to do when the service is over, if you'd like, if you just prayed to receive Christ, you can mark the Talk to Us card, say, I prayed to receive Christ, and bring it back to guest services in the front and the back, and we'll give you this. You can take it home with you today. Please come and receive that. Ryan? Ryan?